Hello and welcome to a new season of Interpreting India. Geopolitical alignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change, supply chain disruptions, urbanization and several other critical global matters envelop the world as India holds the G20 presidency. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology, the economy and international security in shaping India's future. On October 2nd this year the state government of Bihar released findings of the caste census conducted in the state demands for caste census have been made by many people and parties over the years but this was the first caste census done since 1931 in today's episode of interpreting india we are discussing the political and administrative aspects of the caste census and the politics of social justice in india joining us today to discuss this topic is mr d sham babu Mr Sham Babu is a senior fellow at the Center for Policy Research in Delhi. His research interests include socio-economic mobility among Dalits, liberalization and social justice and the role of entrepreneurship in mobility. Before coming to CPR, Mr Sham Babu was a fellow at the Rajiv Gandhi Institute of Contemporary Studies in New Delhi. A former journalist, Mr Sham Babu has published widely on caste, identity and other topics including nuclear non-proliferation. His academic career began with a focus on national security and arms control and he holds an MPhil in disarmament studies from the Jawaharlal Nehru University. Mr Sham Babu welcome to Interpreting India. Thank you for inviting me. So the last publicly accessible nationwide caste census was conducted in 1931. Now this Bihar state caste census has been conducted and the findings have been put out. So let me start by asking you this broad question that why Does the Indian state, which collects data on many markers for individuals and households, why has it been so reluctant to collect data on caste? First thing we have to remember about this uh, whole subject is it is a subjective matter. Caste census is a subjective matter. Those who are supporting predominantly belong to those castes which tend to benefit, and those who are opposed to the Ivory idea. are the caste who might lose because now they are benefiting without that data mm. even though the last time we counted caste wise in this 1931 census there have been demands ever since because a india is a caste society caste is our primary identity mm. and urbanites might say something else but uh, that's a different matter but predominantly it's a caste society mm. and since we have accepted caste based reservations for one group one fourth of the country caste and tribe there is no way we could have avoided extending those benefits to other castes then on what basis can you do that without a caste census so this caste census issue has been uh, coming up ever since 1950 especially in 60s and 70s the basic question people ask is how do we know what we are saying mm. how do you extend any benefit to any group without knowing whether that particular group is backward or forward mm. so i would say that even though i started saying that uh, it's a subject to matter but i would say that for any fair minded observer would want to know when you have a very clearly identifiable markers mm. for each group what is wrong in counting them mm. now the way you started by saying it is that it's subjective mm-hmm. but it seems like it's also interest driven that my subjective interest is different from yours and so some people who stand to gain from census are asking yes. for it and people who are opposed to it are opposed to the census but in the last uh, 73 odd years different types of governments have come and gone right but different ideological inclinations um, there was of course the congress party dominance for many years different states have been led by different kind of party communists were in power for some states different kinds of uh, caste alliance parties were in power in different states but still no census was being done so i mean that seems to be a bit of a uh, odd situation that even though it's such an important issue for indian politics and indian indian politics often turns on caste alliances but still no census was done that seems to be a mystery that yes there is subjectivity some people want it some people don't want it but not even collecting data on this okay there anything more to it than just well i maybe my answer will be a bit long yeah 
During the British time, scheduled castes and scheduled tribes, what we now call Dalits and tribal people, were called depressed people. Mm. So, in the 1935 Act, government redesignated them or rechristened them as scheduled castes mm. and scheduled tribes. Right. Scheduled castes meant those communities that face untouchability. That is the one, one criteria. For the scheduled tribes, those who are geographically isolated and uh, their language or dialect most of the time won't even have a script. Mm. They are socially backward and they are very shy to mingle with other groups. There are certain criteria, even now we adopt that. So when the constitution came into being during the uh, constitutional assembly debates, it was clear for everybody that uh, there was no need for headcount to uh, see whether scheduled castes and scheduled tribes are really backward and discriminated against. No. So we automatically accepted that. Mm. Then Constitutional Assembly also said in Article 340 mm. that we definitely know that these two groups deserve state protection mm. for obvious reasons. But it is possible there are other groups which we need to identify on some criteria. Mm. And for that, the government shall appoint a commission to do the job. Mm -hmm. So that was the context in which you had all those two national backward class commissions. One is by Kaka Kalelkar in 50s and in 70s by Mandal. Yes. They were appointed. So why it has become a contentious issue? You have to see other backward classes in two groups. Mm -hmm. One is the somewhat better off agricultural castes. People with land. Land. And all of them happen to be numerically large groups. Yeah. And they are geographically concentrated. Which meant that their numbers, their economic power could be translated into political power. Mm. So these are the groups demanding, if you see all these OBC assertion, what we call mm. in 1967 elections mm. in UP, Bihar, they came in big. Yes. yes. And uh, even around the same time in 1967, in Tamil Nadu, you had uh, the uh, government coming to power, again, uh, represented by the OBCs. Mm. So these upper OBCs spearheaded mm. demand for job quotas and all that. So when the Mandal Commission uh, report was being prepared, there's one, one member, a Dalit member of the commission, R.L. Nayak. Yes. He made this point that uh, you cannot treat OBCs as a homogeneous group. You have to split them into upper OBCs and lower OBCs. And lower OBCs deserve any state benefits. But upper OBCs being in majority and they are also in prominent positions, mm. they did not uh, accept that. With the result, the first wave of OBC quotas predominantly went to better off sections. Mm. The, the so-called most backward, I hate these uh, categories, but uh, <laughs> the most backward uh, classes being very low in numbers plus very thinly spread across the country could not come together to make any uh, demands. So that is the reason this matter has been coming up, but not nobody possible. even bothered to, and it is, it is not in anybody's interest. Let us see. Upper castes, it is not their interest to count. Yes. Schedule class and schedule tribes, it is not their business at all. And uh, the upper OBCs, they have been getting it. The really deserving candidates, actually, when you see most backward classes, they are in several respects closer to scheduled class and scheduled tribes. Yeah. But they did not have voice. That's the reason we took so much time to have caste census. Even now, Ivan is not sure. Don't forget, if a 2011 census, it was the Congress government which vehemently denied to have a caste census. 
That's a very interesting point you make because I was just looking at the data on the Bihar caste census and as you said that the one point that you made is that the EBCs or the MBCs, whatever you call them, extremely or most backward, they are spread thin. So the collective action is very difficult. And you see, see that in data also that the OBC, there are a few castes which are very large in numbers. Yes. And the EBCs, they are 2%, 3%, across very many castes yes. spread out. So collective action is not easy because caste in a way is the association life. And then within the different castes, uh, getting collective action is not so easy. Maybe that explains why this demand has not been met till now. Now, you mentioned Article 340. So now, they, as you know, they, earlier this year, the Justice Rohini Commission yeah. report was submitted. We have not seen the report, but it was submitted. And I remember initially, I mean, reading somewhere that initially it was given three months. <laughs> said, okay, you sort this out. And, you know, the subcategorization problem can be done in three months. They asked for 14 extensions and it took six years. You know, that itself will tell you something about the complexities of doing this subcategorization and doing it well. Because... The main purpose of that was to figure out who is benefiting and then what can be done specifically in terms of defining criteria so that the most deserving people can get more of these benefits. So can you tell us a little bit about how we should think about the categorization and subcategorization of caste? What are the complexities involved? Just to give a hint of what this complex caste society looks like and how a state which wants to see it, you know, when you see it like a state. How, what are the kind of challenges that come along the way that I'm sure Justice Rovini Commission felt also? Well, as, as an aside, all those 14 or so extensions the Commission received, it appears that most of those extensions committee, the Commission did not ask for. Government <laughs> so government, we want this to end. <laughs> so... Uh, it's not just the complexity of uh, the subject, but uh, it's politically also sensitive for governments. They don't want to open this Pandora's box. Mm -hmm. And I do understand, but I want that box to be open. Mm -hmm. But back to Rohini Commission, it, it was entrusted with uh, slicing the OBC groups mm -hmm. uh, into some meaningful, rational uh, subcategorization. Uh, sub and I read some reports somewhere that it seems so the Commission suggested three broad categories. Now, how it looks like, we don't know. But uh, the caste sensor per se, I mean, it depends how many questions you are going to ask. Uh, for example, take scheduled caste. Now you treat them as one group, whether one is SC or not. But there are 1,100 uh, castes in that, mm -hmm. according to government uh, notification. Scheduled tribes, there are more than 700 uh, tribal groups are put into one basket. As we have seen the uh, subcategorization movements in Andhra Pradesh, for example, between Malas and Madigas, both are scheduled castes. Mm -hmm. But Madigas felt that all the benefits are going to the Malas, so they were being uh, discriminated against. So they wanted a subcategorization that did not go anywhere. It, it stuck somewhere, I don't know, probably in some court. Mm -hmm. The same thing will happen with the uh, OBCs, even though you have thousands of castes. Ultimately, an exercise like uh, the Rohini castes, <laughs> we will have to rationalize these castes and put them in some proper baskets. For example, we talked about the uh, landed upper mm -hmm. OBCs. Lower OBCs are the most backwards are the artisanal OBCs. Mm. See, there was a time population growth was not much. There was no movement of people from here and there. One blacksmith in a village or one barber, his family uh, catering to the village needs, they, they somehow survived. Now with industrialization and with the, whatever reasons, the population explosion that started about maybe six, seven decades ago. Now in one village, you end up having maybe... 20, 30 barbers. Mm. What do you do with them? And for them, education meant at one time doing their profession, their mm. vocation, doing well. A carpenter, his education is how to do carpenting. Yes. He will excel in that job. He will start with his father and he will take over from him. He will improve. He will do according to that. For him, that is education. So you can't go to a carpenter and say you are uneducated. Mm. Now with this modernization and so many people with, with the culture of mass production, somewhere somebody produces for the entire country. Mm. 
Now, many of these artisanal communities lost their livelihood. Like uh, in some northern uh, states, you have these uh, palanquin uh, bearers, yeah. Kahar, Kahar community. Kahar, they... Now, where are the palanquins now? <laughs> and uh, there was no social movements in these castes. With the result, they neglected proper education. Mm. Now, how are you going to categorize all these desperately different and sometimes feuding communities into meaningful boxes? I don't want to solve the 100% of the problem, but through some, some, some rational and good faith exercise, we can go forward. Yes. Now, on going forward, so when we collect data, there's some purpose, right? Like, census also has some purpose. So, for the moment, we can set aside, we can come back to this issue of political purpose of census and how it can help mobilize and for different purposes and counter-mobilize. But from an administrative state point of view, so when I look at it from my public finance hat, I look at the large expenditure schemes. And almost all of them are either universal or needs-based. So they actually don't, uh, so if you look at the largest food subsidy scheme, look at Narega, those, I mean, which are the big ticket schemes, you know, in terms of the amount that is out, you know, outflowing. There's no, I mean, hardly any social identity that goes directly into uh, who gets benefit. There is, of course, income-related criteria. There will be some criteria, which is both like what kind of house you live in, those kind of criteria, needs-based. So we've built a welfare state, which well, the, there are smaller schemes. So there are, for example, schemes for students who can get scholarships, those kind of schemes, which are meant for some kind of social identities. They're for minorities, for SCs, for SC, STs and all. We have that. We also have reservation. Obviously, that is obviously based on uh, social identity. But for the welfare state, there is not much of a you know targeting based on, on caste. And what are the different purposes for which caste census data could be used? You know, what are the ways in which the... I mean, not just what is being done right now, but what could be the potential uses for it, it can be put. Uh, so, is an excellent question. Caste census per se will not be able to answer all these complex questions. Probably it will give you numbers. Hmm. Now, there's a, there was an exercise by the Anthropological Survey of India in 80s. It's a huge project called Peoples of India Project. They produced statewide volumes they did extensive surveys of each community. They talk about, even now, since an anthropological survey work, I, would, I wouldn't say it is dated. It is still relevant for scholars and policymakers. For example, they talk about a community mm. and their features. What are their belief systems? Do they have any gods or goddesses at the community level? Mm. Do women work outside the household? Do men uh, smoke? Mm. Do they consume liquor? Mm. Do women consume liquor? Do women smoke? So, right. and whether women, uh, the girls are uh, sent to school or not. Mm. So, these are the kind of details you need. Why? Mm. We are talking backward classes. We are talking most backward classes. I'll give you one example. Mm. Government builds a school in a village, appoints teachers and pays for all facilities and education is free. Mm. Now, some communities send both their daughters and sons. Some communities send only sons. Mm. There are other communities won't send anybody at all. Probably you can't really say only about communities. So within communities, there could be issues with, say, the father who is an alcoholic or invalid, just kids have to work and earn for the family. So they can't go to school. Mm -hmm. So these are all kinds of gradations are there. So just because we are calling some groups backward, mm -hmm. it doesn't automatically mean that they are physically prevented from going to schools or they're dis discriminated against. There could be something else. What is that something else we need to find out? Yes. Now, I can go to an area like Vidarbha, Rhinosema. These are arid areas and there's not much agriculture with the result. You see widespread poverty and backwardness there. There you need a different kind of solution. But if you go to Western UP, you find some households are not sending their girls to schools. You need something else. So that is the reason and one of the things Dr. Ambedkar said in the Constant Assembly was when he was asked to define backwardness. 
He said that would be the business of local government. Yeah. By the way, I think this is also context to make this point that if and when we are going to have caste census, you will have to include state and local governments in that because you can't have an all India schedule for all these castes. You you can have all India groupings, but at a both state and local level, sometimes you find few castes only present in few taluks. Yes, not in other yes. things. So the next census exercise, if you were to include caste in that, we'll have to have much wider and deeper participation by states and uh, local governments. So just building on that answer, three states had written to uh, center. I think more women have written now to include caste in the national census that, that is conducted. Many states are saying that they will conduct state by exceptions. At least the opposition alliance has said that they want to conduct in some of the states that they are in power in. So it seems like, I mean, it's possible that there'll be some politics around it, but it's possible, likely that at least some more of these census will be done at state level. Maybe a national census may also happen. Now, if we, so this question is in two parts. First of all, is there, how do you see the politics of caste census going forward? And second is, if more census are to be done, one idea you gave is that local government should be included and you know consolidated to do it well. But what are the other ways in which you can do a better caste census? So you saw the Bihar caste census, the way it was done. It it it, it may have had some advantages, but what was the thing that it missed? You know, what was the lacunae you saw in the way it was done? So as, as a person who studies this, as a scholar of this, what would you do better in the future caste census? You know, unfortunately, the whole discourse is being dominated by politicians. Hmm. And their interests are very short term. Yeah. Now, if they really care, even at the state level, for example, Bihar government did this caste census survey and released some data. If they are serious about this, they could ex- appoint a few expert committees, including people from anthropology, mm-hmm. just to study how many castes are there, how are you going to meaningfully put them in different uh, uh, baskets. So census as a government exercise of headcount mm-hmm. probably is step one, but you need several other steps, like uh, finding out a particular community's backwardness. Uh, there is some evidence that not just scheduled costs, many most backward communities do face untouchability kind of uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. But where are they? Is it an all-India phenomenon? So for that, you need several studies. And again, I would say it has to be a good faith exercise. If you see always it as a kind of, now it has become a big thing because of the 2024 elections. Mm. But scholars cannot be and should not be uh, worried about only elections. So if you can make this a more a scholarly work, not a less a political uh, enterprise, that should be the starting point. So census plus so many other local things are needed. Now I want to broaden the conversation to discuss the politics of social justice in India and seek your uh, perspective on a variety of uh, issues related to the politics of social justice in India because you as a scholar have worked on the politics and economics of social justice for many years. I want to understand your perspectives on these issues. So you've written about some of the forces that may be changing the social order towards more justice. For instance, you've written on how the constitutional legal commitment to equality was a starting point for our republic uh, at the time of its founding. So for example, articles 14 to 17 of the constitution or laws, basic laws like the Indian Penal Code have the presumption of equality built into them. You also studied the affirmative action in legislatures, uh, the government jobs and higher education and so forth, which create opportunities that would otherwise not be easily available. And you also analyze, interestingly, the ways in which the market economy might be exerting pressures on traditional caste-based social order in your work with Chandrabhan Prasad, Land Prashid, Devesh Kapoor and and others. On the other hand, you've also written about the consequences of the caste-based society. For instance, in a recent paper that I read by you, you've written about how caste-based social order may have strategic consequences for India as well. It's something that I had not thought about. So I'd like to pick on some of these themes that you've worked on and learned from you. But let me begin with a broad question. What more could we as a polity be doing to mitigate some of the negative consequences of caste in India? You know, I'm a great believer in the constitutional governance. Yeah. 
we have had a very forward looking enlightening constitution it gave us a template to take care of ourselves we have been really irrational very unfair to our own system mm. the system was trying to right the wrongs of centuries now in few decades we wanted everything everybody should be on the same plane now i am 63 now at least i have been counting for the past 30 40 years three decades after independence still we have poverty four decades after independence so if now it is coming to 73rd year or 74th year i mean i would say probably we would have taken a couple of centuries to go to a some level mm. of a middle uh, income country status mm. now we haven't given that much time what we have done was is we sabotaged our own systems mm. for example if you see most demands uh, for more quotas mm. are coming from states predominantly where governance collapsed mm. school education collapsed mm. teacher absenteeism is more so while society is creating more problems and not solving its old problems it is not even letting the state take care of those problems so how many social problems you can solve through political uh, strategies and administrative means mm. there's a limit yes so i would say we need to be more patient now take the case of uh, obc reservations go and read you must have read uh, part 16 of the constitution mm. which deals with the special powers for the some communities the constitution makers they clearly said sc sts needed representation because without a constitutional guarantee they would not get it they would not get it then they said there could be other backward class uh, groups yeah. because as i said no john locks all those reasons for inequality is not necessarily always a discrimination yes. maybe i was born in a wrong uh, re- region i was born in coastlandra but instead of coastlandra had i been born in uh, rayalaseema it would have been different it's not particular caste in a different caste so these are the kind of several reasons why people are not equal mm. now from there what the <laughs> proceeded to say is you need to have some kind of a level playing field mm. you need to bring the guy who is very down to some level mm. but further quotas is not the solution what they primarily proposed for the obcs is spend more resources in terms of say giving scholarships or in poorer regions where there is no school construct a school maybe it's kind of some employment generation scheme or whatever they had all these things in their own minds but what we did we reduced everything to quotas that's why we are in in the current mess and uh, recently i quoted somewhere you know it's not about reality we both can go to a field go to a particular state and collect all the data and do all the surveys and produce a scholarly tome people want to read it now people's perceptions are more important than the reality now it has uh, obcs are convinced both upper and lower obcs the kind of middle class that reservations created among scheduled caste and scheduled tribes they could not do it because they did not have reservations mm. i beg to disagree that's not the reason because it is a social backwardness mm. both agriculture communities and artisanal communities don't put stress on education that's the main problem you need to solve that problem instead of that they are asking quotas but i can actually retract that and also say among scheduled castes and scheduled tribes there is no problem of uh, education mm. they equally send their both sons and daughters to schools maybe triggered among them because of the quotas i don't know but uh, this is a complex area 
we have to be reasonable to ourselves which we are not unfortunately that's a main thing and everything is linked to politics and elections unfortunately yes yeah i would uh, i can say that like, uh, the state has done quite a bit of it it's, oh, yes. just, it's not like uh, it's certainly not a reflection of an inequal society it's built on much more enlightened ideas you know in that sense but pick on one part of it uh, that you mentioned about say education now we discussed earlier the welfare scheme which are built more on universality or needs based now public systems so we have a I mean pretty much a nationwide I mean, education system which are obviously start from preschool anganwadi to then primary school secondary and higher uh, higher secondary and goes to universities colleges which are also I mean many of most of them actually are government uh, funded or government uh, I mean, run directly and then of course we've got hospitals and uh, different health health system which is also uh, we have public health system now in many ways if you run these well right and if you have a well functioning educational health system which gives equal access to everybody then you would at least create some opportunities for people who are otherwise from social conditions are not really conducive to be able to grow and you see that not much investments i mean have happened in some of these states where a lot of this noise is being made right like i come from one state in i mean uttar pradesh and bihar is where this cases has been done up and bihar the public systems are very weak and there is not much politics around improving the quality of uh, education systems quality of health systems nutrition all of that in fact there is quite a bit of leakage and corruption that goes on in that system is studies have shown also so in 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 some ways i feel that this politics of social justice is not touching this part i mean am i right in why is that the case because uh, if you build these systems and that includes police and criminal uh, justice also i mean uh, any public system if well for well run would benefit pretty much everybody and maybe benefit people who are worse off more disproportionately perhaps i completely agree with your point but i can't say why is that so for example social justice parties showed lot of promise hmm they dominated politics of both up bihar almost three decades and you can't even count one good scheme or a good policy which they introduced mm-hmm. which other states emulated or they can proudly say these are our accomplishments this is how we reduced poverty or this is how we improved mm-hmm. anything else you have all central schemes like all these mega highways there's nothing to do with state governments no so why is a fact but why is that i have no idea but they only believed and trafficked in slogans mm. they haven't focused on actual administration i mean i i was on record saying that but uh, uh, that's a sad reality now the same politicians same parties are talking about caste census Mm. why they took decades you know first time you had this division lower obcs and upper obcs that was the brainchild of uh, late kapuri thakur when he was chief minister in 1977 to 79 he did that why his followers did not uh, take it up uh, seriously when they were in power they could have asked the, the universities and colleges To, to to take up some uh, projects in collecting the data and finding out what are the reasons they haven't done any of those things that's a fact why i don't know i can't answer that the second part just uh, yeah it is quite a puzzle because i mean if you see that there is a situation of social inequality and in some ways opportunities are not being accessed because of your I mean, background conditions you build public systems which are directly and freely accessible and if they function well then you <laughs> indirectly you will to serve but you do want to add to that yeah you see once a friend asked me look if uh, there's an affront uh, to a statue of baba saheb ambedkar <laughs> dalits all over the country would come into the streets and they would do protest they would write articles and they go on tv and do lot of activism now in villages in several states teachers are not showing up in schools mm. that is 
affecting the outcomes of dalit children why is it the same dalit parents who are so active on emotive issues won't show the same kind of uh, commitment and fervor when it comes to the future of their own children i said it's a fact but i don't know <laughs> so it's not just the obcs i'm talking about it's a puzzle why we don't care for very basic things in our lives <laughs> no another aspect of your work has been to uh, study the consequences of a more open and you know more rapidly growing economy on the social system and <laughs> to the limits of that as well i mean because you have more recently written about, written about social cognition and you know consequences i mean what which are different i mean where the causality works the other way that your social cognition may shape your material achievements as well right and on the other hand you may also have situation in which as you've shown in your study with chandrabhan prasad and prachitan devesh kapoor that there was mobility that happened after the 91 reforms and there was some degree of in some ways a uh, change you can may not be social change but there is change in the living conditions of people who were able to participate in those now this caste census came out of bihar bihar is the only large state that didn't see any per capita income growth from 91 to 2004 you know like because 91 was a reform and then 93 onwards there was pressure in company who rapid growth of sort started in india and you didn't see any growth at all in per capita gsdp in that state so it it was a it still is a poorest large state in india and uh, in some ways the, that politics is i mean of course on the public system side we discussed but also there is an issue that what is the economic revitalization vision that can in some ways maybe directly or indirectly serve the social <laughs> cause as well i mean may not fully as we said and we'll come to that as well about your work on the limits of that but there is also that mystery that some of these not all because you do see in south there are uh, some parties and some different parties in the same state that agree on some of these social issues and do they do different kind of economic politics uh, i mean their policy making is different but at least in, from the belt where this is coming out of there is not that much of an emphasis even on the well functioning market economy in many ways so if you can tell us a little bit about that work that you did on what are the kind of changes you saw because of the market economy and how do you then kind of link that to the larger politics of social justice thank you for asking that question no i hope we both agree on the validity of market economy as a more appropriate system for any country i agree with but that. Uh, market economy is not just a kind of an autonomous uh, force that yeah. will go and transform the country. it's in a way kind of a superstructure uh, to more stretch the point look around entire oecd they are the best capitalist countries the richest capitalist countries what you see common among them they are all market economies yeah but beneath that they are all believe and practice in the rule of law due process very interestingly you uh, mentioned about southern states in relative terms not in absolute terms rule of law and due process is much more practice in southern and western states than the rest of india so what our work we did on uh, market economy at that time we didn't really focus much on uh, the need for a rule based system rule of law and the due process that is clearly linked to your performance as a society and as a country and as an economy show me one country where there is no rule of law and no due process but it is very rich and prosperous and peaceful country where people can have their civil liberties and freedom of expression you don't find it now this link is not really mentioned because most western countries they take it for granted they don't even bother about asking because they never experienced it in the past 200 years they always maintained some kind of due process now when we talk about market economies in non western societies we somehow think it's all about your exchange rates and uh, convertibility and uh, 
removing trade barriers and rationalizing taxes they are all very important they are only technical stuff mm-hmm. uh, the real is without even talking about market economy if you have a due process and rule based governance you'll buy will improve yeah. a country like india i think instead of talking about market economy we should be talking more and more about the rule of law yeah that is the invisible infrastructure yes. the basic property rights rule of yes. law which basically then uh, give you confidence that if you invest and create some business then you will be able to keep the returns of that part for of example it. i have a problem with my landlord or my employer my employee yeah. i should have a clear path a clear path that doesn't take centuries i can go to a police or i can go to a court ultimately a contestation goes up to supreme court within a reasonable time maybe 5 years or 6 years mm-hmm. a justice is done at least even if i lose it i know that i have used all the means and everywhere the system is more or less fair probably i failed to appoint a, a more brilliant lawyer to argue my case so i can have other excuses but i wouldn't say that system is fixed now we don't have that kind of uh, assurance here even if your legal system is fair it takes ages especially civil cases yes i mean <clears throat> if you get accused of something and in 40 you most likely you're going to die before yes. <laughs> the case is settled you know that's a, it's a really big uh, uh, problem and i mean basic contract enforcement uh, enforcement of the law all of that takes much longer than it should take in any civilized country we, we can anywhere in the, in carnegie india or cpr anywhere we can take a, a simple survey with uh, available data like uh, national crime records bureau data and other data and see where you have rule of law in a somewhat better position mm. that the state is doing fine where rule of law is not a uh, priority for the system the state is suffering it's not rich and poor everybody is suffering now in terms of linking this to the social justice politics that is now taking shape i don't know how you see it so i want to understand from your perspective i mean are these issues finding some kind of currency in that politics are people articulating these kind of issues as well and part of this this part of the uh, discourse is easily you know you can't have rational arguments in public discourse you can't convince many people mm-hmm. you have to you have to bank on emotions mm-hmm. you have to lead and play with people's emotions so this kind of caste senses would do that what to the extent i don't know because it's a second time you know you, you first time it was new for everybody and everybody was on on the bandwagon because nobody knew who would be excluded and who would be included now it's uh, for the most backwards the people who are demanding as I, as we mentioned in the beginning are the upper obcs if the real numbers come out it would be clear that upper obcs have gained mm. much more than the lower obcs so that would really bolster the case of the lower obcs so the people who are in power now in some of these states demanding caste censuses really it won't go in their favor mm. so what is their game plan once it is done or not done or is it only designed for 2024 elections i don't know i'm not really hopeful because in three decades social justice politics has not done anything significant to any group it's is a fact yeah whatever what was done <laughs> early <Yeah. on. laughs> emotive issues yes you see if a community feels empowered if a member of that community becomes a minister or a chief minister mm-hmm. now after that emotive appeal is uh, satiated what next now um, just uh, one other theme on the same kind of <laughs> broad topic is that the working of democracy so now in democracy you need to get a plurality of votes to come to power that plurality can be constructed in a variety of ways right one way is to find different social alliances and i mean it has very interesting consequences like i come from up i told you in 2007 
BSP won a single party majority on a very interesting, unusual social alliance. You know, and it, of course, it's a very complex process through which it achieved that alliance. And it wasn't very kind of, nothing happened in six months, right? It was a long process that led up to that moment. And uh, so we had a Dalit chief minister for five, five years and she had a fair bit of power because she was the supreme of that party. And difference, I mean, such phenomenon can be made possible by the working of democracy because different types of factions have to work together to, to be able to come to power and govern, you know. But that's the limit of democracy. Liberal democracy is generally very silent about what kind of human beings should be citizens, right? Like it's, they don't really... Uh, they want, they take preferences as given mostly. Right? Okay, you have some preferences which come from your family, social background. State is not going to get into <laughs> that too much. Maybe we'll build an education system, some common curriculum, and also nothing beyond that. There'll be some degree of civic education and all. So I also agree that creating good human beings is not necessarily a political <laughs> objective. You know, it's a much larger and complex process. But creating citizens is, right? You can't have a republic without citizens. And you can't have citizens who don't at least believe believe in basic equality, right? Because uh, democracy is fundamentally a social principle, not just a political system or a process of selecting. People have to see each other as equals, politically equals. You know? yeah. Then people have different capabilities, interests. Those inequalities are much more <coughs> I mean, uh, part of the uh, way people live and choose, make, choose their lives. But one no, cannot start with the assumption that a citizen can believe another citizen is naturally inferior to them by birth or whatever like that. So it's completely inconsistent with the idea of having a liberal democratic republic. So let's answer the question of creating better human beings and their beliefs, but creating citizens itself, you know. So as I briefly mentioned that we do have some civic education and those kind of things, but what do you think of how we, how well we are doing on that? Because there seems to be, at least from my perspective, what I see it that there's some change. There is some degree of weakening of identities. More identities are being no more forms of associations are coming together. We will become professionals. They work in companies. Their identities change and become mingled. But how well are we doing on that? Making of citizens? Not very well. As I mentioned earlier, that uh, you know, for our kind of problems, the kind of system we created for ourselves probably do take at least a couple of centuries. So some of these questions we are asking prematurely, but the main point by way of answering your question is, what is a community? Take a large country, there can be several social identities, but still it's a community. To become a community, I would say you need at least two things. One is the so-called commensality, which is you can sit across the table and share meal. Number two is intermarriage. These are the two features that make you a community. On that basis, you can't call India a community. It is a conglomeration of literally thousands of communities. Mm -hmm. They don't interdine, they don't intermarry, that interdining and intermarry amounts to fraternity, that brotherly feeling. Now, without that brotherly feeling, you cannot become a political community. So, where do you put India in that case? Tell me where do you put I don't know because uh, I don't have any other example to say. So, in your one of your <laughs> recent writings, you have this three stages, right? Like the kind of... Um, Society phase, yeah. there is a nation phase, and then there is a nation state, which is yes. kind of a, so. And you say, I mean, you, you just asked me the question, I was saying with you, you own sure, sure, sure. <laughs> some, some ways we are in a pre nation kind of phase, like we still don't have the kind of nation, the community to nation. It's a process. Let us not be too unfair to India. We are a peculiar country. I mentioned, I think probably in the same place, that in the entire OECD, there are only two countries which have more than one language. Mm -hmm. Language is one part, one feature that gives you unity. Yes. Now, the kind of <coughs> extraordinary diversity you have in terms of communities, not just states, look in terms of agroclimatic zones. Mm -hmm. You know, agroclimatic zones, those are the features that in a way, mold your culture over centuries. Mm -hmm. 
Now, anthropological survey, I mentioned about that uh, Peoples of India project. For that, they divided India into 90 units. They call economic and cultural zones. So this is the kind of diversity you have. No matter what kind of very enlightened government you bring about, it's a very complex and very big challenge. So the system we have created is good, but the people who came to work in that are not up to the mark. And what would be the contours of this nation building? Like there have been obviously different attempts. There is this kind of constitutional nationalism, some people call it. And then there is, of course, a certain cultural nationalism, which is saying that we have a shared Hindu identity. I mean, even if your religion is different, there is a civilizational, cultural kind of construct that is being connected with the idea of the nation, which is a very modern... It cannot be basis for your nationhood. Mm. Europe was known as Christendom. It's a land of Christians for thousand years. And all those thousand years, Christians were killing each other based on their languages and groups and denominations. Mm. It became a political unit hardly 100 years back. I would say in the only 20th century. Mm. First and second world was fought according to ethnic lines. So the idea that our religion can unite us, culture can unite us, everybody else tried. You know, Islam talks about Uma. Mm. Where is Uma now? Islam is split into about 30, 40 countries. Mm. I forgot the number. So religion cannot, for example, Pakistan was created on what basis? Religion. What happened to uh, Pakistan within 25 years? It broke into two pieces based on linguistic nationalism. So, we have no evidence from anywhere in the world to suggest that your religion or culture would produce political uh, uh, national. But on the other hand, as you've written in a recent paper, that having this kind of a caste society is a, what you call structural incompetence, yes. which actually in some ways is a weakness for first developing a coherent kind of idea of your place in the world and also building capabilities to pursue that ideas. Can you elaborate on what you meant? By no, it's, you, you, you are fighting an enemy, mm. but uh, your soldiers are from different uh, languages and regions and they have their own food habits and they don't want to sit with uh, other soldiers. How are you going to fight it? But hasn't the state already put in place systems to overcome that? Like if you join a particular force or any particular kind of state organization, then aren't you all equal if you're equally placed in the organization? Isn't that kind of idea of modernity already in place? In In urban areas, more or less, I would agree. But go to any village, it is still structured the way it was structured hundreds of years back. Because it's a geographic... uh, uh, separation also. It's not social separation. Each caste would live in its own corner. They don't interdine. They don't intermarry. Where will you go from there? So, urbanization is one process. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's options like economic reforms. In our study, we found even extreme distress, economic and social distress would end up helping the victims because they would just leave those villages, go to urban areas and they create labor shortages back home Then the Apakash wouldn't be able to have the same kind of uh, control over them. So those are the kind of changes would take place. And then they give it or share dropping to the yes. same families. So, it's so kind of a subversion. Yeah, but again, for everything, keep your rule of law. Keep the constitutional morality. Teach children that much more. Now, let me ask you a kind of a contrarian question on this, that India did see a very rapid growth for almost a quarter century, right, from early 90s onwards. And before that, when we were not growing rapidly, people said our culture is a big impediment to economic growth. And some people use pejoratives like Hindu rate of growth and all of that. You know, it was a pejorative, very very pejorative. And... uh, but then we surprised the world became the second fastest growing large economy in the world and fastest growing democracy in the world for almost a quarter century. 
So how important, I mean, I mean, one, it's a very high level question. Maybe you can break it into parts that all the pre, I mean, cultural determinism of the pre-reform era, in some ways this would fly uh, in the face of that, right? Well, I wouldn't know maybe what happened uh, 25 years since 1991 could be an exception uh, to the rule. It is too early to uh, say that. Uh, I'm sorry, what is the other question you asked? That was the question that <laughs> isn't this uh, 25 years of fairly rapid growth? Uh, I mean, uh, evidence that goes against the cultural determinism of... Now, where does India stand now? Only India is still, still a lower middle income country. still has a long way. Not just that. Uh, in the hunger index, we are 114. We are in the good company of sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, we most are of our South Asian neighbors who are lagging far behind us are doing better than us. Which is to say that we can blame ourselves or we can take the big picture. The kind of problems we have, probably the time frame we are looking at is too narrow. We need yeah, to wait. But it's good to ask the question ourselves, are we going forward or backward? I feel in some respects we are going backward. It is again, it's not even. Mm. There are communities that are going forward. Mm. There are regions that are going forward. There are regions that are going backward. So to have a kind of system where we will be able to address all these different, different segments, mm. There could be, there are states where you don't need Narega, mm. but still you have them there. So these are the kind of administrative and political lapses we committed yeah. over the decades uh, is a bigger problem. I mean, we are sufficiently well equipped. We have fertile land. We can feed not just 1.4, maybe 2 billion population also we can feed. Mm. We have natural resources. We have young population. So the problems we are facing, I mean, I wouldn't really say they are insurmountable. They become insurmountable when you lose the plot. Mm. That's my worry now. Um, penultimate question is, are you optimistic about social justice in India, especially on the caste issue? Because you did say on the course of the conversation that we've made quite a bit of progress. The state has done many things. There has been change, but there's also, you said that there have been some steps backward, as you just said. But overall, what is your... Uh, State has done tremendously well uh, to help the poor and backward and marginalized groups. Hmm. But the social justice project has not done anything. So I am not hopeful about that political project. Yeah, politics of social justice. The very constitution of India itself is a social justice project. That delivered. The idea that you have to have some lower caste come to power only on, on the base of caste and uh, take care of themselves and uplift everybody, it failed. So I, I have no faith in that project. Final question, if you can recommend a book too for our readers. I, would, one book. I wouldn't recommend one book. I would recommend that uh, People's of India Project Volumes. Of, uh, if you, if one can take his own stage or there's one particular volume for scheduled caste, one particular volume for scheduled tribes, and state-wise volumes are there. Anybody interested in these matters mm. must, even though they are a bit dated in terms of published mm. last 20, 25 years ago, but uh, there's a treasure trove to understand the complexity. That's where one should start. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Mr. for joining us. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. From 4 to 6 December 2023, Carnegie India will convene the 8th Global Technology Summit, co-hosted with the Ministry of External Affairs, Government of India. This year, we will discuss key technology policy issues concerning digital public infrastructure, artificial intelligence, critical and emerging technology, 
space, semiconductors, national security and technology, data production and more. To register for the summit, visit gts2023.com. That's gts2023.com. Make sure you follow our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram accounts for more updates on the event. Thank you for listening and see you next time.